Hi, this is Hold Your Fire, a podcast by the International Crisis Group. I'm Richard Atwood. Last week, Iran and Saudi Arabia agreed to re-establish diplomatic relations in a deal brokered by Beijing. Today, we're going to talk about that deal, about Iran's foreign relations more broadly, and about the looming crisis over its rapidly advancing nuclear program. Well, Iran and Saudi Arabia have agreed to re-establish diplomatic relations and reopen embassies within two months. That's after a seven-year diplomatic breach, which has fueled tensions in the Gulf and deepened conflicts from Yemen to Syria. Saudi Arabia has blamed Iran for missile and drone attacks on the kingdom's oil facilities in recent years. Yemen's Iran-lined Houthi movement has also carried out cross-border missile and drone attacks into Saudi Arabia. Iran and Saudi Arabia have broken off diplomatic ties in 2016 after Saudi authorities executed a prominent Shiite cleric and dissident, prompting protesters in Tehran to sack the Saudi embassy. Over the past few years, though, top officials from both countries had been meeting, hosted first by Iraq and then by Oman in an attempt to mend relations. China brokered last week's deal, but had built on those previous efforts. The deal comes at a time when talks over Iran's nuclear program have stalled. Iran's closer than ever to being able to build a bomb. Its relations with Western governments have tanked. Partly this is due to anger in Western capitals at the Islamic Republic's horrific treatment of the protesters, often led by young women who've taken to the streets demanding political change. Western leaders are also incensed by Tehran's supply of weapons to Russia for its war efforts in Ukraine. A suicide drone in action. They've bombarded Ukraine in recent weeks. Here, police shoot one out the sky. Iran is accused of selling many of this kind of drone to Russia. So does the Iran-Saudi deal mark a turning point for the Gulf? What does the deal, and the fact it was brokered by China, say about the region's geopolitics? What should we make of Iran-Russia relations? And what hope is there of averting a crisis over Iran's nuclear program? To talk about all this, I'm very happy to welcome back onto the show Ali Vyas, who's Crisis Group's Iran Project Director and Senior Advisor to the President. Ali, welcome back on. It's great to be back, uh, Richard. Thank you. So can we start? I mean, we heard a little bit about the deal up top, the restoration of diplomatic relations, but can you say anything more about what it actually entailed? So Iran and Saudi Arabia have agreed to restore diplomatic relations in the course of the next two months. They've also agreed to revive a security and economic cooperation agreement that they had signed back in 1998 and 2001. This is to the extent that we have seen the details in the official announcement. The Wall Street Journal also reported some additional details. Apparently, Iran has promised to help de-escalate tensions in Yemen and convince the Houthis to come to the negotiating table. And Saudi Arabia has agreed to tone down Iran International Satellite TV Network that played a role in fueling the fires of protests in Iran in the past few months. But this is an agreement that it didn't come out of the blue. It came after five rounds of negotiations that were facilitated first by the Iraqis and then by the Omanis. And so the Chinese were basically pushing against an open door. And in some ways, as you say, the fact that there's a deal is not necessarily a surprise. But why do you think it came now? I mean, from what I understand, the Iraqi and Amani facilitated talks had sort of petered out. Two things I think were surprising about the announcement of the deal. One is the timing. The other one 
which is even a bigger surprise, is the location, which was Beijing. The timing, I think one can come up with explanations, which is related to the fact that I think all sides were seeing dark clouds gathering in Iran's relations with the West. The potential of a confrontation between Iran and the U.S. or Israel over Iran's nuclear program, of course, is a concern to China, which imports a majority of its oil from the Persian Gulf region. And given the struggle that the Chinese economy is currently dealing with after COVID, any additional increase in oil prices would have been highly damaging for China. So one can see why China wanted to try to at least shield off the Gulf region from additional tensions. I would say uh, the Saudis wanted to get themselves out of the line of fire in case that there is any additional tensions or a confrontation between Iran and the U.S. And I would argue that the Iranians had a similar motivation, which was to try to prevent the emergence of a coalition comprised of the Gulf countries and Israel uh, against them at this time of rising tensions with the West. And the location, the fact that the deal was brokered by China? On the location, I think the biggest surprise was that the deal was announced in Beijing. But maybe in retrospect, it's not really a surprise because there were not a lot of other countries who could be well-placed to broker a deal like this. Of course, uh, Oman and Iraq have good relations with both sides, but they don't have a lot of leverage. Whereas the Chinese, as the sole importer of Iranian oil, uh, at this moment, and one of the biggest uh, trading partners of Saudi Arabia uh, had plenty of leverage. And it's also, in, in a way, uh, a signaling exercise to the United States as well. China is basically trying to signal to the U.S. that the age of Pax Americana in the Gulf region is coming to an end. The Saudis are trying to uh, signal to the U.S. that they risk losing uh, a lot of ground to China. And Iran is also trying to signal to the United States that its effort to try to further isolate Iran is not going to work because Iran has great power support in the form of close relations with China and Russia. So, Ali, Iran and Saudi, as we heard, broke off their diplomatic relations in 2016. Then the Saudis and the Emiratis threw their weight behind then US President Donald Trump's so-called maximum pressure campaign. So the US pulling out of the nuclear deal, lots more sanctions on Iran, more sort of coercive behavior against Iran in the region. Then in 2019, there were a series of strikes on Saudi and the Emirates, which were assumed to be perpetrated by Iran or were attacks by the Houthis, the Yemeni rebels backed by Iran. And the US basically did nothing, didn't come to Riyadh's and Abu Dhabi's defense, much to sort of their dismay. And since then, the Saudis have sought to calm things down with Iran, to de-escalate with these meetings hosted by Iraq and by Oman over the past few years. So, I mean, why did it take them so many meetings to get to this deal? I mean, Iran also, from what I understand, has wanted to improve relations with the GCC countries. Yes, that is right. In fact, in 2013, when President Rouhani took office, in his first speech, he asked for much closer relations with neighboring countries, and he highlighted uh, relations with Saudi Arabia. But of course, things went in the opposite direction. And in 2016, after an attack on Saudi embassy by Iranian protesters, after Saudi Arabia executed a prominent Saudi Shia cleric, it resulted in Saudi Arabia cutting off diplomatic relations uh, with Iran. And since then, relations 
deteriorated, but Iranians always wanted to try to reverse this course. I think the problem in the five rounds of negotiations that were happening was that uh, the two sides were talking past each other uh, in the sense that uh, for Iran, the biggest uh, priority was normalization of relations with Saudi Arabia, whereas for Saudi Arabia, the biggest priority was uh, the conflict in Yemen. And uh, of course, the solution was always in the form of doing these two things in parallel, that it would come not uh, in a sequential manner, but in a simultaneous manner, which is what the Chinese did finally. So, Ali, there have been these protests across Iran for months now, triggered by the death of a young woman, Moksamini, in police custody. What about six months ago, protests that have been often led by young women, other young people, arguably the most serious challenge to the regime, certainly for the last decade. Do you think maybe that in the early stages of those protests, Riyadh was waiting to see what would happen? As you talked about it, also funded Iran International but it was waiting to see whether the regime would survive. But now this deal also represents a bet by the Saudis that actually the Islamic Republic, the current regime, for now at least, is going to survive. And that's also what's played into calculations in Riyadh. I think one of the key driving factors here in terms of timing were domestic security calculations for both sides. Of course, for Saudi Arabia, Yemen is not a question of foreign policy, it is a question of domestic security. And for Iran, also, the role that Iran International was playing was directly related to their internal security. Also, uh, I think on the Iranian side, after several months of protests and abject failures of the Raisi administration in addressing the country's massive economic challenges, uh, and the fact that a year and a half into the Raisi government, there's been almost no significant diplomatic achievement. Uh, the Iranian regime also wanted to be able to demonstrate that it's fully in control after uh, months of protests and that it's uh, able to strike deals, including major powers, with neighbors that were previously seen as keen on regime change in Iran. And I think that is probably also uh, a calculation that uh, Riyadh had come to as well, that maybe in the initial months of the protests, they believed that uh, the Islamic regime was teetering on the verge of collapse. But now it appears that uh, they have prevailed in this round of confrontation between the state and the society in Iran, and therefore uh, the Saudis would be better off dealing with them than hoping for a different kind of regime in Tehran. So whereas some months ago, the Saudis may have calculated that it was worth waiting to see if indeed the regime was going to survive, now Riyadh doesn't seem to think that it's worth waiting anymore and uh, it's worth pushing ahead with this deal. It certainly appears that way. I'm sure there have been other calculations that have played a part uh, in, in the timing and the fact that it didn't happen in the past as well. For instance, uh, the Iraqi government, which was uh, mediating the talks in uh, 2021 and early 2022, they also went through a phase of political uncertainty and there was a uh, transition of power in Iraq as well. So uh, all of these uh, play a role in, in the timing. Uh, but I think the most important element uh, is what I said before, is the potential risk of a confrontation uh, in Iran's relations uh, with the West. And 
Uh, and ironically, risk of escalation there has resulted in de-escalation uh, in the region. Could we talk then about Yemen, which, as you say, reports suggest Iran helping push the Houthi rebels towards some sort of compromise seems to have been part of the deal, as you say, in Beijing. So in Yemen, there was this truce last year that lapsed some months ago. But for the most part, there hasn't been a resumption of major fighting. The Saudis and the Houthis have been talking, but those talks seem to have got stuck around a Houthi demand that its fighters, so basically it's sort of parallel security forces, be paid out of central bank coffers. The Saudis have wanted an end to that war a way out for some time, but also they, they want an end that they feel protects their core security interests. Do you think Iran can actually deliver that? I mean, Tehran is close to the Houthis, but how much can it actually dictate what they do? So that's one of the risks of this agreement, in the sense that, as our former colleague Peter Salisbury used to say, Iran's relations with Houthis could be described as Iran having its foot on the accelerator, not its hand on the wheel and its foot on the brake. It can encourage or discourage the Houthis to escalate or slightly de-escalate, but it can't really fundamentally change the Houthi approach towards the negotiations. The Houthis are not uh, an Iranian proxy. They are aligned with Iran. They are supported by Iran, but they are fiercely uh, independent. So there is a hard ceiling to how far Iran can go in influencing the position of the Houthis at the negotiating table. For sure, they can influence it, but they can't fundamentally uh, alter it. And I do worry that if Iran falls short of delivering on uh, its promises to to the Saudis uh, on this file, that it would undermine the entire uh, agreement. And it would be you know, one more uh, evidence of Iran's unreliability in the eyes of Saudi leadership. So you talked a moment ago about why China was involved, how Beijing was able to broker this deal. And I guess now the question is how much China will have a hand in its rollout. Now, I guess I should qualify that the countries that have traditionally mediated in the Gulf haven't been playing much of a role. I mean, the Western powers, as we'll get to, have largely given up on Iran since the protests. But do you see China as being able to steer things, ensuring some of this stuff now actually happens? Well. I think both sides have very little motivation to do anything that would alienate China. And China has uh, now put its uh, uh, credibility behind this agreement. Uh, so that is certainly a, a motivational factor uh, for, for both sides. And it appears that the way that, the Ch- that China wants to build on this agreement is that after the normalization of relations uh, uh, that is supposed to happen in the next two months, uh, to organize a summit of Iran and GCC in China to start talking about how they can build on this agreement uh, and move towards an inclusive regional security architecture. Now, that is a very ambitious uh, agenda that uh, I don't think could happen realistically in the short run. And again, the, the proof is in the pudding in, in the sense that whether normalization would result also in Further understandings on Yemen, on Syria, on Lebanon, on Iraq, on all of these arenas of competition between Iran and Saudi Arabia in the past few decades. Iran and Saudi Arabia have had diplomatic relations on and off over the past uh, four decades, but the presence or absence of diplomatic relations has not necessarily fundamentally changed the 
geostrategic rivalry uh, between the two sides. Uh, and for China to uh, fundamentally turn that around, I think is a massive undertaking. And we'll see if uh, China is actually going to do the legwork leg uh, of moving this process forward uh, or uh, has just mediated this deal and is now hoping for the best. And Ali, there's another country that has been looking for some time to normalize its relations with Saudi Arabia, and that's, of course, Israel looking to follow up on the Abram Accords, you know, these deals it's had with some Arab governments, including the Emirates, to normalize relations. In that light, I imagine the view from Israel about the Iran-Saudi deal is pretty negative. Uh, yeah, the most hostile reaction to this agreement has come from uh, Israel for understandable reasons. Iran has basically uh, got to Riyadh uh, before Israel. But the reality is that I don't think the prospect of normalization between Saudi Arabia uh, and Israel was uh, realistic to begin with. I mean, as long as King Salman is around, uh, that's very unlikely. And as we have uh, seen in reports uh, by a Wall Street Journal, um, uh, the Saudis have also set uh, some conditions that are extremely difficult for the U.S. to meet. Uh, the Saudis want the U.S. to provide them with uh, nuclear fuel cycle uh, technology. Uh, they want uh, security guarantees from the United States, and they also want uh, uh, the resumption of the sale of offensive uh, weapons to Saudi Arabia uh, that stopped when the Biden administration came to power. Uh, those are very difficult conditions uh, for the U.S. to meet. Um, and, and so I don't think the prospect of normalization was inevitable uh, between Saudi Arabia and Israel. Whereas, as I said, the, the, the prospect of normalization between Iran and Saudi Arabia was more realistic because uh, the, the foundation was already uh, laid by uh, five rounds of uh, negotiations uh, between the two countries facilitated by Iraq uh, and Oman. So we'll come in a moment to the JCPOA, the Iran nuclear deal, and US and European policy towards Iran. But could we just, Ali, talk first about something else that's been a lot in the news recently, and that's Iran's relations with Russia. Obviously, there's been a lot of attention to the weapons that Tehran is sending uh, to help Russia's war efforts in Ukraine. So these small kamikaze drones, a lot of ammunition, there's been talk. I'm not sure they've actually materialized of uh, short-range ballistic missiles. And certainly it seems that Iran's relations with Russia during the Ukraine war and the protests in Iran have evolved. How do you see that relationship over the past 12 months? I think, first of all, it's important to understand that Iran could not afford to turn its back on Russia. Russia has proven to be a reliable partner for Iran. It came, of course, to Iran's rescue uh, in Syria in 2015 by providing air support to help save the Assad regime. Russia uh, is uh, the only country that has used uh, its veto power at the UN Security Council to shield Iran. And I would say Iran had specific benefits in helping Russia in Ukraine. Of course, as a country under sanctions, they will sell anything to anyone. And of course, this was an opportunity to gain financially. Russia is also using the North-South Corridor uh, in uh, Iran uh, for transiting its goods. It's doing oil swaps uh, with Iran uh, and is using Iran's experience in circumventing sanctions to go around uh, Western uh, sanctions on Russia. Uh, Russia is also giving Iran a lot in return. Uh, it has promised to sell Su-35 uh, fighter jets to Iran. This would be the first time Iran would be able to get fighter jets in four decades. 
Uh, it has promised to provide Iran with the S-400 missile defense system, which would make targeting of Iran's nuclear facilities by uh, the U.S. or Israel more difficult. Iran is also getting a chance to test its weapons. The Shahid-136 uh, drones and Mahajir-6 drones, uh, Iran is testing them in real battlefields in different weathers against different uh, aerial defense uh, systems. It is also an opportunity for Iran to send a message of deterrence to its regional rivals by showing uh, its capabilities. I think where Iran miscalculated is that it really underestimated the backlash that this support for Russia would produce in Europe. Uh, it thought that this would be another exercise in compartmentalization, uh, that you can have nuclear negotiations, as was the case in the past, while Iran was engaged in Yemen or Syria, so Iran's uh, engagement in the conflict in Ukraine would be treated the same way. They didn't realize how visceral uh, this issue would be uh, for the Europeans. It hoped also that its help with Russia would limit Israel's maneuvering space uh, in Syria. It hasn't. You know, we've seen in the past few weeks that Israel is continuing to target Iranian uh, assets in Syria in what is known as the war within, within war, uh, the Mabam uh, campaign. And basically, Ali, these are Israeli strikes that take place in Syria against Iranian assets, as you say. So Israel and Russia in contrast, have these sort of deconfliction mechanisms in Syria so to ensure that the Russians don't get caught up in what are basically targeted strikes against the Iranians by Israel. But Russia has never really seemed to discourage Israel from conducting those strikes. Correct. Although Russia is cooperating with Iran militarily in Syria to save the Assad regime, it uh, also looks the other way uh, when Israel uses Syria's air, uh, airspace to target Iranian assets there. Uh, and Iran was hoping that this would change as a result of uh, its cooperation with, uh, with, with Russia and Ukraine, and it didn't. I think it also didn't realize that cooperation with Russia comes with competition. Iran and Russia uh, are now competing to sell oil to China, to sell uh, steel uh, to China, and they, therefore they both have to compete for market share and uh, give bigger discounts to China. And finally, it underestimated the fact that Russia benefits from further escalation in uh, Iran's relations with the West. And I would even go as far as saying that a potential conflict between Iran uh, and the United States uh, will be seen as a blessing for Russia, because one thing that could help Russia is the potential opening of another front that would distract Western attention from Ukraine. And is there a danger, Ali, for Iran in getting so close to Russia? That's something that it's tried to avoid in the past, no? Iran traditionally, in the past few centuries, uh, has done negative balancing between great powers. I, I don't think it wanted to be entirely in the camp of Russia and China. But the failure of nuclear negotiations and the rising tensions in Iran's relations with the West as a result of uh, its provision of weapons to Russia and also as a result of its brutal repression of protests in the past few months has created a vicious cycle in which Iran uh, is increasingly isolated and so it moves closer uh, towards Russia. Uh, and as a result of that relationship with Russia, it gets further isolated uh, by the West and the cycle repeats itself. And so where do things stand now then in terms of relations with the West and in particular as they relate to the stalled negotiations on 
the restoration of the nuclear deal of the JCPOA? So relations with Europe are at a historic low. There have been several rounds of human rights-related sanctions on Iran in the past few months uh, by the Europeans. Uh, Iran has uh, taken uh, about uh, two dozen uh, European citizens as hostage, accusing them of uh, having a role in in the recent uh, uh, protests in Iran. In some ways, I can say that I think the Europeans are now even more hostile uh, towards the Islamic Republic uh, than uh, the United States. But, um, of course, um, the U.S. has also uh, imposed uh, 10 rounds of sanctions on human rights uh, uh, in, in the past six months. It has also um, increased the pressure on Iran and international fora with its allies. It helped to create for the first time an investigative mechanism uh, at the UN level to look into the brutal crackdown of the regime against uh, the, the peaceful protests uh, in the past few months. And of course, uh, the, the biggest concern in Iran's relations with the West uh, is, uh, is the ticking bomb that is Iran's nuclear program that has uh, been growing at an alarming pace. And so what diplomacy exists now then between the US and uh, Iran? I mean, the nuclear talks are pretty much on deep freeze, but there are still talks about prisoner exchanges. Yes, that's right. Um, uh, the U.S. Uh, is engaged in uh, negotiations with Iran over a detainee deal through intermediaries, and the Europeans have their own discussions with the Iranians uh, to try to get uh, their uh, citizens released. If uh, there is a detainee deal between Iran and the U.S., it could potentially turn into a uh, foundation uh, on which both sides could also uh, maybe agree on a way of uh, diffusing the nuclear crisis. It's hard to imagine that uh, restoration of the JCPOA uh, in uh, the time that remains in the Biden administration, with uh, elections being uh, uh, you know 18 months away, would be possible. Especially because the giving a, a regime that is killing his own people on the streets and indirectly responsible for killing Ukrainians by providing. Uh, Russia with weapons uh, is so politically fraught in uh, Washington and other European capitals uh, that it's really hard to imagine uh, that uh, the West is still interested in restoring the JCPOA. And Iranians too, I think it would be hard for them to give away all of their leverage, uh, not knowing uh, who is going to be the next US president in 2025. And just to remind people, that's because the JCPOA was signed with the US as a party in 2015 by the Obama administration. Then when President Trump came into office, he pulled out of the deal, in essence. And one of the challenges over the past couple of years in getting back to the deal has been that Tehran fears that if it does return to the deal when a Democrat is in the White House and then a Republican comes to office, the same might repeat itself. And again, the regime loses a lot of face at home. Exactly. And, and that's why I think all of these maneuvers that we've seen in the past few weeks could be seen, could be framed as tactical uh, moves aimed at buying time until there's more certainty about what's going to happen in Washington politically. Iran has uh, the Supreme Leader of Iran issued a series of uh, pardons. Thousands of uh, prisoners who were arrested during the protests in the past few weeks have been released. Uh, this is obviously an effort by 
the regime to try to bring down the temperature uh, internally. It also did a deal with the with the International Atomic Energy Agency uh, to give them more access uh, to uh, an underground facility that in the past few weeks, there was evidence of enrichment very close to weapons grade at 84%. Um, weapons grade is, uh, is just uh, 90%. And by doing this deal, Iran averted another central resolution at the Board of Governors of the IAEA meeting that happened during the first week of March. And now we've seen this deal with Saudi Arabia, uh, which again, uh, I think, uh, brings the temperature down at the regional level. So all of these moves uh, basically create a pattern uh, that is aimed at keeping a lid uh, on the situation uh, until uh, we have more certainty about uh, what's going to happen uh, in uh, the U.S. politically. Uh, None of it really amounts to a major uh, strategic shift uh, in Tehran's calculations. Do you think, Ali, I mean, for all the anger that there is at the moment about the protests and the regime's treatment of the protesters in Iran, for all the anger that there is in the US about Iran giving Russia weapons, still the last thing that the US actually wants is an escalation across the Middle East related to Iran's nuclear program, uh, particularly while the US is so occupied in, in Europe. And similarly in Tehran, Iran also doesn't have much interest right now in an escalation across the region. So which is why, exactly as you say, it's tried to keep things under wraps with the recent agreement with the IAEA and then now the Saudi deal. Do you think then there's a moment, notwithstanding the difficult politics in the US, do you think there's a moment to do something that's less than the JCPOA, not getting back to the JCPOA for all the reasons you say, but could at least freeze Iran's nuclear program in exchange for something on the sanctions? to buy some time until the 2024 U.S. election is over and then maybe sort of take stock of where things stand? It is certainly a possibility, um, but it's still very difficult to do. Uh, any kind of deal with uh, Iran would uh, probably trigger the 2015 Iran Nuclear Agreement Review Act that U.S. Congress passed when it was reviewing the original nuclear deal which requires uh, congressional intervention. Um, so even if you were, we're talking about a narrower deal, it still uh, would become a, a political hot potato in, in D.C. politics uh, as we get closer and closer to presidential campaign. Just clarify, what level does an understanding between Tehran and Washington have to get to for it to have to go to Congress? So anything that is a quid pro quo officially uh, agreed to and announced is a deal. Uh, unless it is unofficial, it is not uh, uh, basically uh, uh, even announced. Uh, both sides would just take voluntary measures, uh, then it might fall short. But otherwise, uh, it would require congressional intervention, which is the last thing that the White House wants. And leaving aside the role of Congress, do you think there's much appetite in the White House itself? I mean, obviously not much chance now of getting back to the JCPOA. But do you think there is appetite in the White House for something that's sort of less for less, as it's often called, some basic exchange that, again, Israel stops its nuclear development in exchange for less enforcement of the sanctions? And that sort of parks the Iran nuclear question through till next year and also might stop Israel from either taking things into its own hands or lobbying Washington for military action. In fact, my sense is that is uh, the White House's preference, even over restoration of the JCPOA, which would be politically costly. 
precisely because of the reasons you outlined, that uh, it basically puts this issue on the back burner. And if there is continuity after 2024 elections, uh, then in the second term, uh, a Democratic president would uh, have more maneuvering space, as did the Obama administration in his second term. Uh, and if there is a Republican administration, it's somebody else's problem. So a narrower deal is, is what uh, the White House is particularly interested in. In September, uh, we as Crisis Group published a report of saying the most realistic uh, way forward, if, if the restoration of the JCPOA is no longer on the cards, uh, is a gesture for gesture, which is just one step by both sides. And th- this could be seen as, a, as voluntary measures that would just contain this situation. In addition to both sides communicating to one another privately, where the red lines lie so that they don't cross them unintentionally. But Richard, having said all of this, that potentially we see a pattern of de-escalation aimed at uh, basically building a bridge uh, between now and post-U.S. elections, I also think there are significant risks of uh, black swans in, in the next few weeks and months. We know Prime Minister Netanyahu in Israel has always uh seen Iran's nuclear program as a major existential threat uh, to Israel. Uh, Iran has never been closer to the verge of nuclear weapons than it is today. Uh, and he has always had a tendency of using uh, covert operations to try to set back Iran's nuclear program. Uh, I fear uh, if there is another targeting of an Iranian nuclear scientist or an Iranian nuclear facility that last happened when Prime Minister Netanyahu was in office in 2021, Iran might respond by, for instance, enriching to 90%, which certainly crosses a a U.S. uh, red line. And this could potentially result in snapping back of the U.N. sanctions uh, by the Europeans and the United States, which Iran has threatened would lead Iran to withdraw from the non-proliferation treaty altogether. So there are plenty of risks that things could go wrong uh, in in the next uh, few weeks and months. And if you think back, Ali, to 2014, 2015, 2016, when the nuclear deal was being negotiated and then signed, one of the big challenges was opposition in the Gulf monarchies, particularly Saudi Arabia, to the nuclear deal, the worry this would unleash Iran in the region. I mean, we're talking actually this week, 20 years after the Iraq invasion, which arguably unleashed Iran in the region much more than anything that's happened since but certainly from the perspective of of some of the Gulf monarchies, the JCPOA furthered that by giving Iran additional resources to support non-state allies, state allies uh, across the region. If you look at today, the the context is very different. You have the Saudis and the Emiratis both wanting to de-escalate with Iran and the potential for at least talks on regional security. Do you think there's any way of, instead of coming at what which is been the case over the last decade or so, of trying to come to the regional security arrangements, things like ballistic missiles, things like security guarantees, things like the, an understanding about the respective influence of different countries in Yemen, Iraq, Syria. Do you think there's a way it, the, over the past decade, the, the traditional has been sort of nuclear first and then come to those? Do you think there's a way of, of doing it the other way around where the regional negotiations could provide some way of getting to the nuclear question? Well, I would say instead of thinking about it in terms of sequence, uh, we should think about it as actually merging uh, these two tracks. 
because we have seen that in the past, uh, compartmentalization of these issues uh, don't necessarily work because tensions uh, on one front could spill over into engagement on another front. And so uh, it is, I think, time for starting to think about the nuclear issue in a, in a, in a regional uh, way instead of focusing on Iran. Also, that the core bargain of the JCPOA, which Crisis Group uh, advocated for from the beginning of this crisis 20 years ago, uh, is based on uh, a, a simple formula on nuclear restrictions and transparency measures in return for economic incentives. The problem is Iran's nuclear program is now so advanced that short-term restrictive measures and transparency measures are not going to alleviate concerns uh, in the West about Iran's nuclear intentions. And the West has also proven incapable of providing Iran with effective uh, and sustainable sanctions relief. And as you said, unlike in 2015, that Iran had good relations with Europe and uh, was on talking terms with the United States uh, and, uh, and tenuous relations with uh, uh, countries in the region, uh, it's now the other way around. Uh, and so in that, I think there is an opportunity to try uh, to merge the two tracks bring uh, Iran and uh, the GCC countries to agree to a set of nuclear measures that could be described as the first step towards the Persian Gulf region free of weapons of mass destruction, um, and, uh, and, and that the economic incentives also come from the region, uh, because Iran has had uh, a very close uh, um, economic ties with Dubai, for instance, that have proven to be completely resilient uh, to Western coercive measures. And so if Iran is seeking uh, uh, guarantees uh, that uh, its economic relations uh, would, would continue, the best way of uh, uh, putting its investment uh, is, uh, is uh, through regional trade. And I think regional countries have also realized uh, the Qataris have come to this conclusion. Uh, the Emiratis had come to this conclusion years ago. Uh, and we've uh, also increasingly hearing that the Saudis are in, interested in investing in Iran because economic interdependency obviously gives regional countries the kind of leverage on Iran uh, that they've never had before. Though that was Germany's hope in Russia, uh, that economic ties would shape Moscow's behavior. And of course, in that case, that assessment proved wrong. I think the difference with the parallel of European policy towards Russia is that economic interdependency on its own is not sufficient. Uh, one also has to take into account legitimate security concerns of both sides. If that is not prioritized as much as uh, economic ties, uh, then one could potentially derail the other entirely. Ali, let me ask you one last one. You published a piece a very moving piece, actually, in Foreign Affairs a few weeks ago about the protests. And obviously, it's been an extremely difficult time for many Iranians in Iran itself. As we talked about, terrible accounts of what the regime is doing to its young people, to young protesters. But it's also been tough for the diaspora, especially for people who are trying to find solutions to the nuclear crisis that don't bank on regime change or the use of military force. In Europe and the US now, you have very vocal constituencies, not only pushing against diplomacy with Iran, making that type of policy very difficult, but also in quite an unpleasant way, attacking people that do push for diplomacy. Do you want to say something about that? 
Yeah, sure. So look, Richard, um, yes, the past few months have been very difficult for us and, and the diaspora watching, uh, the tragic developments in Iran, uh, the brutality that the regime has used against its own people. But I've always believed that the one thing that is worse than an autocratic regime uh, in Iran is a conflict with Iran. And so I still feel uh, comfortable in the mandate that I have here at Crisis Group and uh, our organization's uh, objective and try to prevent a, a war that would only make a bad situation worse. And also, it's important to uh, understand that although members of uh, my own community would now accuse people like uh, myself of trying to keep the door to diplomacy open, the reality is in the West, there is a long tradition of dealing with unsavory regimes that are engaged in the kind of activities that pose a major threat to international peace and security. And I don't trust the Iranian regime with uh, pallet guns. Uh, it has blinded hundreds of protesters with pallet guns. How can I trust them with nuclear weapons? So I still believe that uh, it is feasible to call uh, the Islamic Republic an evil empire and yet engage in the kind of diplomacy that would curb the biggest threats they pose uh, to international peace and security. And nuclear weapons, of course, is on top of that list. This is a, a position that I'm comfortable with, even though uh, a lot of my compatriots now uh, believe that uh, uh, the West should prioritize regime change. Uh, what I think they overlook is the fact that regime change can happen only at the hands of the Iranian people, uh, regardless of what the West wishes. Uh, and so in that sense, although uh, I'm sure people, some of my compatriots who would be listening to this podcast would uh, accuse me of trying to save the Islamic Republic, uh, but I think these two things are not mutually exclusive, that uh, the West can engage in diplomacy uh, with Iran and at the same time can support the Iranian people uh, in their aspiration of uh, seeing fundamental political change in the country. And maybe, Ali, worth adding that, from what I understand, the demands that those outside the country are making are not the same as those championed by protesters inside Iran. So there is also a disconnect between what the people inside of the country want and, and are pursuing and what the diaspora's agenda is. The three main priorities for the diaspora in the past few months have been stopping nuclear negotiations with Iran, expelling Iranian diplomats, and designating the Revolutionary Guards by European governments as a terrorist organization. We have seen in the past few months uh, statements from civil society actors, human rights defenders uh, in Iran, some of them directly from inside of uh, prisons in Iran. And we have not seen an echoing of uh, the demands of the diaspora. The problem is, there is an atmosphere of an, uh, extreme intolerance, especially on social media, uh, especially targeted towards uh, women, uh, which is quite ironic uh, that uh, people who pretend to be supporters of a women-led movement, primarily in uh, pursuit of women's rights, go after uh, women journalists, women activists uh, who disagree with them. And just to clarify, Ali, these are attacks on Iranian women outside the country, who also recommend diplomacy for dealing with Iran's nuclear crisis. That is correct. So Iranian women in prominent media outlets and prominent think tanks 
who are trying to keep the door to diplomacy open and are trying to add nuance. And again, there are parallels with, uh, with the Iraq war, because in the run-up to the 2003 invasion of Iraq, there was not a lot of nuance uh, on debates around the Iraq war. It was a black and white image uh, that basically facilitated and paved the path towards that conflict. And I'm afraid that part of this effort by some members in the diaspora to try to stifle people who add nuance, people who want to basically offer alternative policy recommendations, is aimed at creating the same kind of situation, that there is no choice left other than a military intervention aimed at bringing about regime change. But of course, the track record of that kind of regime change in that part of the world is nothing but disastrous. Ali, thanks so much for coming on again. Always a pleasure. Thank you. Hold Your Fire is a production of the International Crisis Group. I'm Richard Atwood. You can find all of our work on Iran, on Gulf security, on everything else we cover on our website, crisisgroup.org. Two of our colleagues, Dean Esfandiari and Anna Jacobs, have a piece out specifically on the Iran-Saudi deal. So check that out. And of course, you can also find all of our many years of work on Iran's nuclear program on our website too. You can also follow us on Twitter at Crisis Group. Thanks to our producers, Kevin Murphy, Heiko Schaub, and thanks, of course, to all of you, our listeners. Please do get in touch, podcast at crisisgroup.org, or write to me directly, atwood at crisisgroup.org. If you have any questions, suggestions, or concerns, do leave us a positive rating or review. Tell your colleagues and friends about us if you like the show, and I very much hope that you'll tune in again next week.